from deep inside your audio device of choice. There was a moment where I didn't think it was here, and then it was. Ladies and gentlemen, how, what's, hap- what's up with our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia? Well, I did tell you last week about that uh, beheading of the Shiite cleric. It did draw some attention in the days that followed. You might have noticed. I don't know if the Iranians listen to this program. If so, I don't know how to say hello in Persian or Farsi. But uh, this week, new new information on our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. The United Nations now has received troubling reports, they say. They're troubled. You get the United Nations troubled. You've done something. Uh, Reports, I say, that cluster bombs have been used on civilian areas in the capital of Yemen this week. In the capital of a country where, you know, it's probably the only thing that you could even recognize as a city. The U.N. has warned the use of such indiscriminate weapons could be a war crime. Now, uh, separately, a report in Britain said that the British government's policy of authorizing the sale of warplanes and other military materiel, as they like to say in the military, uh, could itself be a war crime. But now back to the U.N. The Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, oh, you Ban Ki-moon, is particularly concerned about reports of intense airstrikes in residential areas and on civilian buildings in Sana'a, that's the capital of Yemen, in case you didn't know. You knew, including the Chamber of Commerce, a wedding hall, and this is the touch that lets you know the Saudis really care, a center for the blind. The Secretary General has also received troubling reports of the use of cluster munitions and attacks uh, a couple days earlier in several locations, said the spokesman person. The use of cluster munitions in populated areas may amount to a war crime due to their indiscriminate nature, unquote. Human rights groups had accused the Saudi-led coalition, meaning the Saudis and uh, other Gulf nations that do business with the Saudis and whose royal families are related to the royal family of the <laughs> um, using cluster munitions in Yemen. Uh, the UN spokesman did not precisely identify who might have deployed the cluster bombs, but he did note somewhat demurely that it's the Saudi-led coalition that uses warplanes, not the rebels. Narrows it down. Just so you don't feel too superior, according to Human Rights Watch, in a report in April of 2003, U.S. ground forces in Iraq were using cluster munitions with a very high failure rate, creating immediate and long-term dangers for civilians and friendly soldiers. Because if you use cluster bombs and they don't go off when you want them to, and later, years later, children come by and play with them, and then, boom, you see what I'm saying. Um, But that was us. That wasn't a war crime. That was my wife. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the godly. At least 231 children at a famous boys' choir school in Germany. You know, a boys' choir school were victims of physical abuse, according to a lawyer tasked by the school with investigating allegations. That's a far higher figure than was thought for the scandal. The scandal itself dates back decades. The Regensburger Domspatzen, yes, it is the language of love, a thousand-year-old choir in Regensburg, Bavaria, was uh, plunged into the sexual abuse scandal 
surrounding the Catholic Church in 2010 when allegations of assaults that took place decades ago went public. The choir, interestingly enough, was run by Georg Ratzinger. Surname sound familiar? Yes. Pope Benedict's brother. He ran it from 1960, only for 30 years, 1964 to 1994. That's when most of the claimed abuses took place. Nutty coincidence time. Ratzinger has said the alleged sexual abuse was, quote, never discussed, unquote, in the time he ran the choir attached to the boarding school. Well, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that's possible. I'm sure he might have made sure that it was never discussed. Lawyer Ulrich Weber, who had been commissioned by the diocese to look into the cases, said uh, this week that his research, which included 70 interviews with victims, uncovered abuse that took place even earlier. I have here 231 reports of physical abuse, he said, ranging from sexual assault to rape, severe beatings, and food deprivation. That's a new one. The uh, Catholic Church in Australia has spent millions of dollars providing pensions, housing, and private medical insurance to convicted pedophile priests, despite branding them evil and having most of them, most of them defrocked. You can be defrocked and have insurance, can't you? I guess so. The um, Melbourne Archdiocese alone is still financially supporting six former priests who've been convicted for committing sex crimes against children. This is according to the Age newspaper Down Under. Pardon me, in Australia. Parishioners have unwittingly been partly funding the assistance through donations into church collection plates. They thought those funds went towards the local church or fundraising for retired priests. Well, in a way, yes, but in another way, (laughs) surprise. Church records show two of the pedophiles, Wilfred Baker and David Daniel, received hundreds of thousands of dollars alone in annual pensions and entitlements. But they were alone. Oh, I see. The victims of these priests received one-off payments of much less under the redress screen, scheme. Well, it's about time they get... Oh, sorry. The decision to continue financially supporting disgraced priests was made by senior church officials in Melbourne and the top advisory council at the Vatican, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Spokesperson for the Archdiocese in Melbourne said the church is currently providing support to six priests with criminal convictions for child sex crimes. Nine others have received pensions, housing stipends, or private health insurance after their convictions and until their deaths, despite the fact that it, many of them had also been defrocked. The church is obligated under canon law to support all priests in retirement old age. A mother, uh, among those who received lifetime assistance, Father Bill Baker, who molested at least 21 children. The church had received complaints about him as early as 1978. He did plead guilty to 16 counts of indecent assault and one count of gross indecent, indecency. The year before, he'd been allowed to retire. A euphemism the church regularly used for priests who were fired over sex abuse allegations. Well, euphemism is that ceremony where they... No, that's another thing. The uh, priest, Baker, was paid a pension and housing stipend worth $21,000 a year, Australian, as well as covering the cost of his car payments, registration, and medical and auto insurance. The church believes he was the only priest to ever receive any financial assistance for his car. Because you can't spell car. You can't spell care without car. Hello, welcome to the show.
From the edge of the Mississippi River, which um, is is being diverted, so don't flood New Orleans. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. There, there is so much this week. Speaking of which, apropos of flooding here, flooding in England, flooding in uh, Southern California, El Nino-related flooding. Um, people writing articles about maybe. Maybe it's time for us to reevaluate the way we deal with water. Huh. Yeah. And the way we the way we um cope with too much water at those times and too little water at other times, like maybe not in the case of Southern California, not just build a concrete corridor to shunt all the water out to the ocean because we might need it because there's drought later on. And floodplains are called floodplains because they flood. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to read the trades for you. Our our listeners in the United Kingdom might want to know that there are two things that are advertised on television in the United States that aren't advertised on television in Great Britain. One category, pharmaceutical drugs. That's why so many Americans are so well-educated on side effects. And the other, politicians, the subject of this article from Advertising Age. I think I'll read it for you. It's called 
No one hates political ads more than car dealers. Gee, how do you root? One constituency is dreading the coming barrage of political advertising, perhaps more than any other, car dealers. In some battleground markets, by which they mean cities, a president... Check last week's the show for that. A presidential race can soak up a third or more of local broadcast TV advertising time, crowding out auto dealers, who are typically the biggest buyers of local TV ad time, according to a Bloomberg analysis. That shift can hurt sales. Take Cleveland, for example. Now give it back. It's a major battleground in the 2012 campaign. The number of car ads that ran on local broadcast stations in October 2012, the final month of that election race, fell to 4,553, a 16% drop compared to the same month a year earlier. While the number of political ads soared to more than 27,000 that month alone. Actual car and light truck sales in Cleveland rose just 5%, even as the nation rose 16%, according to the Kelly Blue Book. The flood of political commercials and broadcast TV in 2012, which bumped car ads off the air in local cities across the U.S., may have slowed the rise of new auto sales on an average by 1% in September and 1.5% in October, and could have been three times as much in the most intensely targeted political markets. We relied heavily on TV during that cycle, and Ohio was carpet-bombed with political TV ads in the months before the election, said Bernie Moreno, who runs a chain of car dealerships in the Cleveland area. We were not able to get our message out as effectively, he says. Balancing the needs of political campaigns and longtime clients like auto dealerships is a, a delicate act for stations. A couple years ago, auto dealers spent $8.1 billion on advertising, with the average dealer allotting almost $115,000 to TV commercials, according to the National Automobile Dealers Association. That marks them among the most important clients for your local TV stations. TV executives bend over backwards in advance of the election season to make sure they're taken care of, according to the head of the Trade Association for Broadcasters. Local TV stations love election years and the money that flows in from campaigns desperate to reach their viewers, especially from outside political groups that have deep pockets, because unlike candidates, those groups aren't guaranteed the lowest rates available. The flood of ads and the last-minute nature of their purchases often mean that those super PACs are paying substantially more. Says Les Moonves, chief executive officer of CBS. We have a year of political advertising that looks like it's shaping up to be pretty phenomenal. We love having all 16 Republican candidates throwing crap at each other. It's great. The more they spend, the better it is for us. I would just interpose to say, wonder why there's so little support for campaign finance reform. Why? Seems to be impossible. During 2012, in weeks when political spots 
Modded for less than 2% of local broadcast TV ads, autos had 14% of the share. When political ads spiked past 30% of the time, auto fell to 6%. The only thing that held constant was the amount of time that local stations devoted to promoting their own programming. Some things never change. Hey, you do what you got to do, you know. Yes, shed a tear for car dealers, ladies and gentlemen. An adjuration I might never have given you had I not read the trades for you. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast, and now turning the page to News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole Jr. And yes, there are pages. See? There really are pages. When I say turn the page, I wasn't being metaphorical. The um, Olympic Games overrun their costs uh, projections with 100% consistency. No other type of mega project is this consistent regarding cost overrun. That's a 2012 study by o economists from Oxford University. Every Olympics from 1960 through 2012 has run over a budget, not by just a little, with an average cost overrun in real terms of 179%. Overruns in the games have historically been, been significantly larger than for other types of mega projects, including infrastructure, construction, and dams, says the report from the Oxford Economist. The data just thus showed for a city and nation to decide to host the Olympic Games is to take on one of the most financially risky types of mega projects that exists, something that many cities and nations have learned to their peril. Boston's would-be org... This is from Outside magazine, the online edition. Boston's would-be Olympic organizers had to settle debts incurred by just trying to start a bid. As reported in the Boston Globe, they settled their debts by asking creditors to take less money back. An L.A. City Councilman was reported by the L.A. Times to point out it would take about $2 billion just to buy and remediate the rail yard proposed as a location for the Athletes' Village if L.A. won the 2024 Olympics. $2 billion. That city councilman's got that on him. Stephen Billings, an economics professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, has studied the economic impact of hosting the Games. He says even when hosting isn't an economic sinkhole as it was for Montreal, which took 30 years to pay off its debt, having an Olympics in your city is at best, quote, a wash, unquote. Well, then all you need is a dry and you're good to go. Even that best-case scenario turns out to be bad for a city and a country when economists James Giesecke and John Madden of Monash University in uh, Australia looked at the Sydney 2000 Games. 
Asking what would have happened if the money had been spent in other ways, they found that in terms of measurable economic welfare, the Sydney Olympics came as a cost to Australians, reducing the present value of real private and public consumption by 2.1 billion. And facing severe budget cuts in almost all aspects of the Rio games, they're now being boosted by Panasonic signing on as sponsor of the opening and closing ceremonies. It'll provide an array of equipment to project visual images and sound for the ceremonies. Countries in the midst of a deep recession. Rio organizers are trying to cut about 500 million in expenditures to save within a 1.9 billion operating budget. With games opening in just under seven months, the cuts reach everywhere, including the use of unpaid volunteers. The Brazilian filmmaker who's part of the creative team for the opening and closing ceremonies has been complaining about sharp cuts to the ceremony budgets. But Panasonic steps in to help because the Olympics, it's a movement. And we all need one every day.
From New Orleans, this is the show. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. It follows like the night of the day. We're so sorry. A Thai cosmetics firm that is in Thailand, not cosmetics for your ties, don't get excited, boys, has withdrawn its video advertising, its video advertising a skin whitening product after it was attacked on social media for being racist. The commercial for Snows, with a Z, Features a famous Thai actress, Chris Horwang, not Chris Horwang, attributing her success to fairer skin. The company behind the product, Soul Secret, issued a heartfelt apology saying it had not meant to offend. Comments about the shade of a person's skin have been commonplace in Thailand, which has an abundance of skin whitening products. Many younger Thais now refuse to accept the stereotypes associated with skin color. Quoting the commercial, In my world, there is tough competition. If I don't take care of myself, everything I've built, the whiteness I have invested in could be gone. That's what Chris Horwang, Chris Horwang, warns in the video. At that point, her skin turns almost black and a young and very white rival appears by her side. She looks down in dismay at her dark complexion and muses, quote, If I was white, I would win. Select, suggesting people with dark skin are losers is definitely racist, wrote one person on a Thai language form. Soul Secret quickly withdrew the commercial and offered a swift apology. What we intended to convey was that self-improvement in terms of personality, appearance, skills, and professionalism is crucial. The advertising slogan couldn't have been blunter. It ended with, eternally white, I'm confident. The company behind the massive gas leak in Southern California, which has just been declared the leak, not the company, a, an emergency by Governor Brown, uh, the company behind the leak has denied it's responsible for an environmental catastrophe. Southern California Gas says it's deeply sorry for what happened and is working to stop the leak. But it says it's not a threat to public safety. I wouldn't term it that, said Mike Mizrahi. Maine's tough-talking Republican governor admitted he made a mistake and apologized this week for ma- making what has been widely condemned as a racist remark at a town hall meeting. Governor Paul LePage insisted he was being unfairly pilloried for one slip-up. I was going impromptu, and my brain didn't catch up to my mouth, LePage said. Instead of Maine women, I said white women. If you go to Maine, you can see it's 95% white. He got into hot water uh, during a meeting when he began talking about the heroin problem and blamed out-of-state drug dealers. These, quote, these are guys with names like D-Money, Smoothie, Shifty, these types of guys, they come from Connecticut and New York, they come up here, they sell their heroin, they go back home. Incidentally, half of the time they impregnate a young white girl before they leave, which is a real sad thing because then we have another issue we have to deal with down the road. 
quote the governor's spokesman. He is not making comments about race. He uh, said at a private function three years ago, President Obama hates white people, but he denied making the remark. But he's apologized. Uh, Another governor apologizes, Michigan's Rick Snyder, apologizing for the state's role, his state's role in the handling of the contaminated water that flowed through the taps of homes in Flint, Michigan, for at least a year. The governor said a full accounting of the crisis and the cost of a long-term solution won't be available until later. High levels of lead have plagued Flint's municipal water supply for at least a year prompting extensive emergency measures to keep residents safe. The governor said he wants tangible measures, testing and filters, and long-term solutions to provide health care for those who are affected by the lead in the water, like the kids who will, you know, just be affected for life. And uh, there may be a, a blip in the crime wave in Michigan in a few years. He apologized for the crisis, calling it an unfortunate situation. costs to undo the damage could be between one and one and a half billion. Michael Moore from Flint started a petition petition calling for the arrest of the governor. A spokesman for the governor called Moore's petition inflammatory. The owner of Piatto Pronto, a sandwich shop in Andersonville, a district of Chicago, Illinois, regrets wearing a shirt, which many on social media called racist and tasteless. I apologize, owner Mike told Chicagoist magazine. He declined to give his last name. I really, really apologize, sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Did I sleep last night? No. The photo surfaced on Facebook. The shirt reads, I can breathe. I obey the law. The message is a reference to the death of Eric Garner, who famously gasped, I can't breathe, before he died at the hands of a New York police officer who was uh, giving him an illegal chokehold. It's not racist to make fun of that. The British Army has apologized to the family of a young soldier who died of heat illness after being subjected to an unlawful punishment known as beasting. Gavin Williams, a member of the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Welsh Regiment, collapsed in 2006 after being forced to take part in vigorous marches and then work out in a gym on a searingly hot summer day. After a six-week inquest, the coroner ruled this week that the beasting was unlawful, concluding the chain of command knew or should have known the practice was taking place. It's so hard for the chain of command to know anything these days, isn't it? About anything. The uh, coroner said Williams, was pun- who was punished for setting off a fire extinguisher during a, as a prank during officer's ball, could have been saved had his fellow soldiers recognized he was suffering from heat illness. An Army spokesman said it accepted there was a culture of unofficial punishments at the time of William's death. Brigadier John Donnelly, the Army's head of personal services. Really? The British Army has one of those? I bet they have a concierge. Anyway, Brigadier John Donnelly said, I apologize for the failings that led to Gavin's death and accept responsibility for them. We acknowledge there was a culture of unofficial punishments at the time of Gavin's death. This is unacceptable and was unacceptable. We've made a number of improvements to try to ensure it does not happen again, which the coroner has recognized. We will now study the coroner's conclusion carefully. Williams' mother, who has campaigned for almost a decade to find out what happened to her son, said he had been the victim of inhuman and degrading treatment. And 
Newsweek magazine issued an apology this week after a senior writer compared Ted Cruz, the Republican presidential candidate, for those of you who are not paying attention, and his supporters to Nazis. Writer Alexander Nazaryan made the joke in a now-deleted tweet. It was uh, had a picture of Nazi soldiers carrying swastika-laden flags, and uh, his tweet said, Ted Cruz has a strong ground game in Iowa. <laughs> Nazaryan responded to criticism of his remarks by issuing a half-hearted apology to Cruz supporters, not the candidate, arguing his job required him to have opinions. This is Newsweek, ladies and gentlemen. They're still in business. Newsweek evidently disagreed with him. I would like to express on behalf of Newsweek our disappointment that this occurred and reiterate that this does not align with our editorial values, said Editor-in-Chief Jim Impoco. Newsweek. Yeah. Continuing. I apologize for any doubt this might have cast on Newsweek's editorial integrity or credibility. Newsweek. We've addressed the situation with Alexander and the rest of the staff and will be reviewing and reiterating our social media policy in coming days, said Newsweek editor-in-chief Jim Impoco. Newsweek has a social media policy. Newsweek. All right, enough of that. The Apology of the Week. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of inspectors general. Ever since President Obama announced that the U.S. government would operate on a cloud-first policy back in 2014, I missed that. Wow. So we trust the, the U.S. government trusts the cloud. Government agencies have scrambled to put flam- framework in place in order to begin acquiring the new technologies. A new report published by the Department of Defense Inspector General finds that part of the cloud solutions used by the DOD may contain risks. These risks identified by the Inspector General have been defined as monetary risks and cybersecurity risks. On the monetary side, the report found that a department-wide definition for cloud computing had not been established. This has caused the lines to be blurred between what is cloud and what is not. Well, we're getting deep here now. What is cloud? It has also caused some questions to arise concerning whether or not some cloud programs are actually saving the government money at all. Yeah, I know which way I'm betting. The DID, DOD's chief information officer points to the government's standards agency's definition of cloud computing. The inspector general seems to require a more concise definition. The DOD inspector general and the DOD's chief information officer disagree with each other's assessments as to how to define cloud. Let's let's listen in on those meetings sometime, shall we? The Inspector General's report also found that the Chief Information Officer of the Department of Defense was unable to provide details on the cloud computing contracts that are in place. Different systems are used to access all of the different cloud subscription plans used within the DOD. The IG says the Department of Defense must look into finding a single system that simplifies the department's numerous cloud contracts. Well, then that would mean less fun. The report went on to say that the DOD currently uses at least eight different cloud service providers, including Amazon and Google. Well, that should be secure. Two years before the public learned of Hillary Clinton's private email server, the State Department gave an inaccurate and incomplete response about her email use when it told an outside group it had no documents about her email accounts beyond her government address. That is from a report from the State Department's Inspector General that came out 
this week, adding more fuel to the fire about Hillary Clinton's email, private email account, a an issue that, thanks to a lot of folks refuses to die. The State Department made its, resp- its statement in response to a 2012 records request from the independent, independent watchdog group. The response came even though Clinton's chief of staff, Cheryl Mills, who knew about the secretary's private account, was aware of the inquiry. The Inspector General Review found agency staffers had not searched Clinton's office for emails. This is one of four cases the report highlights as examples of flawed responses to public records requests made while Clinton was in office, although the report found it was part of a long-standing problem at the State Department stretching back through previous administrations. State Department officials concurred with the Inspector General's findings and recommendations to improve training, procedures, and oversights. In uh, There was another dump of Hillary's emails this week. It's late. They admit that. It was supposed to have done by, been done by the end of last year. Uh, and in the one that's making news, in a 2011 email, she asked where the author of an analysis of the situation in Libya worked. She was informed he was a State Department employee, and she wrote, quote, I was surprised that he used personal email account if he's at State, unquote. And also this week, telephone conversations became public. The BBC had issued a uh, request for transcripts of telephone conversations between 1997 and 2000 between Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. And they came out this week, or they became public this week. At one point, Clinton spoke of his affection for Durham Cathedral. Blair says, I was a choir boy at the cathedral in Durham, if you can believe that. Clinton replied, you still have that choir boy look. Clinton uh, offered to babysit when he was told by Blair that he was expecting another child. That's uh, some of what has already come out. But there, there may be more conversations happening at this very moment. Next. Clinton something. The candidacy years. I have no bill. It's it's uh, it's Tony. Oh, Mister Blair, I do declare. <laughs> Damn man, we haven't talked since you uh, since you started your little bromance with George W. <laughs> yes, well, whilst one's in power, one does tend to nurture relationships with other people uh, similarly situated, doesn't one? One guesses. Yeah. So, how's Sherry? How's how's the kid? What's his name? Oh, Sherry is fine. Mm. Uh, the kid is so grown up, he's got his own drone. Man, when I was a kid, I had to save up for two weeks just to get a paper airplane. <laughs> yes, they, they grow up so fast. The planes? The kids. Oh, tell me about it. 
Chelsea's on the board of our foundation. Now she's telling me when I can fly private. <laughs> yes, well, enough about aviation, Bill. <laughs> I wanted to touch base with you just to say a friendly... Who the hell decided to release the transcripts of our phone conversations? Well, Tony, they were released by my library. It was a... Ah, uh, yes, this presidential library thing. It, I, I can tell you one thing, Bill. Hmm? I've been in the forefront, I should say, or of borrowing a great deal from your fine system, ranging from the personality cult of the leader to the use of consultants and pollsters and the like. But one thing you'll never find British Prime Ministers doing is building their own libraries. They can just go off and release whatever they like, whenever they like, regardless of the consequences to the participants. Oh, look, Tony, compared to some of the real stuff I said to you, to a boatload of other people, these conversations were... they were tamer than Bud Light. Yes, he, he would be a baseball player. Uh, he wouldn't. Mm. I mean, what possible consequences can... Bill, one... I borrowed something else from your system. Your personal system. Mm. The ability of a nation's former leader to now use the value-added nature of his experience to realize appreciable gains in his net worth profile. You have a foundation? Oh, I have several. Mm. And uh, take just one donor... I'm not sure that the president of Kazakhstan relishes the prospect of his conversations with me someday becoming public. There have been moments when he became quite frank on the subject of his fellow Kazakhstaners, and I must say, to my regret, I, I didn't attempt to remonstrate with him, so... Oh, hold on, Tony. Hillary's skyping in from her fundraising tour of Hollywood. Ah, yes, well... Uh, just a second. <sighs> Hey, hon, what a relief to hear from you. Tony Blair was bending my ear about... Hello, hello, Bill. I was... <laughs> yeah, Tony, I just... I'll, I'll be right... <laughs> yeah, I was pulling you... Hold on. Hello. Oh, thank God it's you. Gee, I think I was in my third year of law school the last time you greeted me that way. <laughs> How's the fundraising going, toots? Geffen give you the land under Cedar sinai yet? Not yet. Still ironing out the legal wrinkles. Look, hon, I don't want to tell you how to do your business. Oh, gee. I haven't heard that since I was in my third year of law school. But it's time to get you-know-what back under control. Oh, now look, I, it's, I swear, it's been zipped up tighter Not than... Not that. Mm. The so-called bimbos... Of course, I never approved of that usage. It was demeaning and disempowering, and Carville never cleared it. Got it, got it. I got it. Look, toots, Trump's just shooting these random spitballs into the air. Some are bound to come down near you. That's just Newton's law of political gravity. But Bill, one of our major bundlers is MIA. Oh, shoot. I didn't realize rappers were even donors, let alone... Missing in action, not at any of our events, not working the phones, not... Nothing. Robbie thinks it's because he's afraid of blowback from all those trips he took you on. Oh, that's silly. The foundation reimbursed him for the plane flights. Ask Chelsea. From the companions that were on those trips, dear? The female ones? Uh-huh. Well, look, I wasn't out there, obviously, but I don't think Hollywood shut the bank door to you, has it? No, but... These women may get their second 15 minutes with Sean Hannity, but, hun, every minute they're wasting talking about, quote, my women is a minute they're not talking about, oh, I don't know, 
your private email server. Personally, I think you may owe these gals a thank you letter. That is the single Look, most... Look, I got Tony Blair on the other line. Let's talk later. Okay, but let's talk. Oh, you got it. Jesus, Tony, you wouldn't believe the crap I have to tell Bill? You. Oh, damn it. <sighs> Tony? Yes, Bill. Mm. Uh, look here, I know this is a long shot, but uh, there's not any way to retroactively redact some of those conversations, is there? <laughs> it's a longer shot than England winning the World Cup, mate. Aha. Uh-huh. And before you go blaming my library, <laughs> Tony, they were just responding to a Freedom of Information request from your very own BBC. <laughs> well, Bill, I can assure you, it wasn't, and most assuredly now isn't mine. I'm just saying, those are your peeps. Yes, well, that freedom of information thing is another American import that uh, we should bloody well send back. <laughs> it's nothing but a full employment law for cranks and conspiracy theorists. Uh-huh. Well, that government-owned broadcasting thing is a British import we never bothered to import, so... So Hillary's well... Yeah, she's fine. Missing a bundler. Yes. Well, I'm sure that's painful, but uh, she's a strong girl. She'll get over it. Damn straight. And listen, my friend, Mm -hmm. tell the president of Kazakhstan the door at my foundation is always open. Mm. Probably not the wisest security procedure, but yes, of course I'll tell him. Take care, mate. You be well, mate. Youthful angst and middle-aged angst. Together they add up to Clinton something. The candidacy years. Be wise. Be fair. Be sure. Be there. smart behave my heart don't upset your cart when she's so close be soft be sweet but be discreet don't go off your feet she's too close for comfort Too close, too close for comfort, no, not again Too close, too close to know just when to say when Be firm and be fair, be sure, beware On your guard, take care when there's such temptation One thing leads to another Too late to run for cover She's much too close for comfort Be sure, be 
on your old thinking cat boy Cause if you don't look out you will find that you are much too Too close for comfort You're heading for a mishap boy The first thing that you know she will have you up that old tree She's too close for comfort Too close Too close That's too close Be firm and be fair Be absolutely sure beware On your guard take care When there is such a temptation One thing leads to another Too late to run for cover She's much too close for comfort now One thing leads to another Too late to run for cover She's much too close for comfort now One thing leads to another Too late to run for mother She's much too close for comfort now Be wise, be fair, be sure, be there Behave, beware She's too close, too close for comfort now And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? Award-winning. Don't ask me what award. No, I, I have it somewhere. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Over the holiday season, Inside Climate News came out with a sort of an interesting story. You know that Exxon had been running... Uh, scientific research into the possible effect of carbon dioxide emissions on the climate back in uh, as early as the 1970s. Well, the American Petroleum Institute, an organization of all oil companies, together with the nation's largest oil companies, ran a task force to monitor and share climate research between 1979 and 1983, indicating that Exxon was not alone and indicating that the industry was aware of its possible impact on the world's climate far earlier than previously known. The group's members included senior scientists and engineers from nearly every major U.S. and multinational oil and gas company, including ExxonMobil, Amoco, Phillips, Texaco, Shell, Sunoco, Ohio, as well as Standard Oil of California and Gulf Oil, the predecessors to Chevron. This is according to internal documents obtained by Inside Climate News and interviews with the task force's former director. This not known till now. Exxon launched its own cutting-edge CO2 sampling program in 1978. About a decade later, it, spe- later, it spearheaded the campaigns to cast doubt on climate science and stall regulation of greenhouse gases. The previously unpublished papers about the Climate Task Force indicate that the American Petroleum Institute, the industry's most powerful lobbying group, followed a similar arc to Exxon's in first investigating and then trying to stall uh, efforts to control 
CO2 emissions just as Exxon began tracking climate science in the late 70s when only small groups of scientists in academia and the government were engaged in the research. Other oil companies did the same, according to the documents. Like Exxon, the companies also expressed a willingness to understand the links links between their product, greater CO2 concentrations and the climate, according to the papers. Some corporations ran their own research units as well. It was a fast fact-finding task force, says James Nelson, the former director of the task force. The group was initially called CO2 and the Climate Task Force. A background paper informed American Petroleum Institute members way back in 1979 that carbon dioxide was rising steadily in the atmosphere and it predicted when the first clear effects of climate change might be felt. In addition, task force members appeared open to the idea that the oil industry might have to shoulder some responsibility for reducing CO2 emissions by changing refining processes and developing fuels that emitted less carbon dioxide. A Texaco official offered for consideration the idea that an overall goal of the task force should be to help develop ground rules for energy release of fuels and the cleanup of fuels as they relate to CO2 creation. That's from 1980, minutes of a meeting, meaning... Minutes also show the task force discussed a potential area for research and development that called for it to investigate the market penetration requirements of introducing a new energy source into worldwide use. Yet by the 1990s, it's clear that the American Petroleum Institute had opted for a markedly different approach to climate change. It joined Exxon in a lobbying group whose objective was to derail international efforts to curb heat-trapping emissions. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. It is, as always, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Apology of the Week, another publication. Apology. A recent editorial written for the Orange County Register used phraseology in a particularly unseemly argument to criticize a bill passed in California requiring cheerleaders for sports teams to be classified as employees, not independent contractors. The inference that cheerleaders should not be granted that status because they get to, quote, work closely with rich athletes, an argument both ridiculous and absurd, rightfully raised eyebrows in criticism. The Orange County Register apologizes to our readers and will ensure that this does not happen again. If we still have readers. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 system in Japan. Around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network. On the mighty 104 in Berlin, up and down the east coast of the North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, and WWNO.org. Oh, and we're on the internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want it, HarryShare.com and KCSN.org. And it be just like cheerleaders getting to work with rich athletes. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? All right, thank you very much. Uh
a tip of the show chapeau in San Diego, Pittsburgh, Hawaii, and Chicago in exile desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halston and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, music playlist, music heard here on, available at harryshare.com. As are Cars I Talk t-shirts, no kidding. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. This is your genial host saying, until next week, so long from New Orleans. <laughs>